Thank you, Trey. Well, hi. Welcome. I am Kyle Cox. I am not Jacob Smith. Um, I'm an intern here at Grace Bible Church. I'm one of the directors for Dulos, and I'm very excited to be here. So if you've been with us, you know that we've been going over Hebrews. We are not doing that tonight. So next week, everything will go back on schedule. We'll be back in Hebrews, but this week we're going to be in a different passage. Um, Tell you a little bit about me. I graduated two years ago, 2013. Yeah, 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 all right. It's a couple of you. And I, you know, I want to be vulnerable with y'all tonight. I got to tell you, Something about my past, and it's going to be real, and it changed my life. I played football for four years, and now I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. He played football? And you're right to think that because I'm a small guy, and if you believe it, I was, I was smaller even in that point in high school. And I remember the torture and the torment and the suffering that I went through every practice for four years. Now, I'm not here to brag about that because I could literally have got hit by a car, been in crutches, and walked onto the team. That's kind of what our school was like. We are a six-man, 1A team. The most we ever had on the team was like 18 people. And I distinctly remember my assistant coach, my sophomore year, he comes up to me and he says, Kyle, and he's trying to motivate me here. He says, Kyle, you remind me of me when I sophomore and high school football player, slow, weak, short, unathletic. I'm like, all right, you got to get to the point here. What are you trying to say? And he finally says, but when you're a senior, you're going to be one of the best players on this team, and you are going to lead this team to glory. And so you know what happened? I worked really hard for those next two years. I went to every practice. I endured every game. And you know what happened my senior year? I was just as bad, if not worse, than I was my freshman and sophomore year. And it was the, the, the pressure of it all weighed on me because due to me being a senior, I just happened to be a captain of the team. Not because of my skill, but because I just literally walked into the title. I was a captain with three other people. My twin brother was one of those. And oh man, to compare my twin brother, I have to use the Hensworth brothers. Um, Tyler is like Chris Hensworth. So he's playing in the Marvel movies, like throwing the hammer and everyone loves him and knows him. And I know what you're thinking. Are you about to compare yourself to Liam? No. I am the third Hensworth brother that some of you are kind of like, they have a third Hensworth brother? That was me on the team. And so we as captains, we would walk on the field during the game and we would shake hands with the opponents, the other team captains, and we would look them deep in the eye and we would be very fierce. And they would see me walk back and I'd turn around again, you know, just to just kind of put the fierce attitude in the mood. And you know what? They would never see me again because I never got back on the field. (laughs) And so that was my life through high school for those four years. And my head coach at the time, he comes up to me near the end of my football career and he was like, Kyle, I want you to know something. I know your skill wasn't there, but you had more heart than most of the people who ever walked through this. And as a high school senior, what that correlates to is when a girl says she just likes you as a friend. (laughs) Kind of just explodes, and you're like, I don't want to have heart. I want to be a good football player. And so from there on, I kind of forgot about it. And these last, really recently, the last couple weeks, I started to think about that. It just popped in my head, and and I remembered what he said. 
And I, I came to realize, I, I think he was being genuine. I think he was being sincere. And here's why. Yes, was I terrible, about, terrible at football? Oh my word. Yes, awful. I don't think you understand. I was so bad at football. It was like terrible. Um, but I went to every practice. I went to every game, though I sat on the sidelines. I endured through the practices when I would be used for the first string to practice against, and I didn't quit. And I think, I think that's what he was getting at, was the natural response for me was to quit. The natural response for me was to give up or walk off the team. And so what I see is that as I did not respond to a way that he expected, and it got his attention. And in reality, that, that principle relates to us as Christians is when we don't respond in a way that the world expects, we get their attention. And we're about to see through a prophet, the prophet Ezekiel, he's about to go through something so tragic and so hard, and we're going to see his response. And so the main theme of tonight is when we don't respond to tragedy and suffering that the world expects, we get their attention. So if you want to turn to chapter 24 of Ezekiel. We're going to quickly read. We're going to start in verse 15, and we're going to see a great loss happen to this prophet. Chapter 24, verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not out loud. Make no mourning for the dead, Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet and do not cover your lips nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning and at evening my wife died. And on the next morning I did as I was commanded. And the people said to me, will you not tell us what these things mean for us that you are acting thus? Then I said to them, the word of the Lord came to me, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, the yearning of your soul, and your sons and your daughters whom left behind shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips nor eat the bread of men. Your turban shall be on your heads and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall, not, you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Thus shall Ezekiel be to you a sign according to all that has been done shall be done to you. When this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. So to understand what's happening here, to get to this point in chapter 24, we really need to understand a little bit of the, he, uh, the background and the history. And so who we're generally talking about is the southern kingdom of Judah. And so after Solomon, after his kingship, the whole nation of Israel split into two. And you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And within the people of Judah, there's three prophets who during this time are, are ministering to and prophesying to, to Judah. And those are Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel. I look at these three prophets and these are kind of like the prophetic trilogy, if you will, of the Old Testament. They're all living at the same time. They're all prophesying to a similar group of people and they all correlate with one another. And so Jeremiah comes first in this equation. He, he comes in about 30 years before Ezekiel. And Jeremiah, he's dealing with people of Judah who have turned to false gods they're profaning the temple of God. They're looking to Egypt for their salvation and for their hope. And so they have completely turned their eyes away from their creator. And so Jeremiah comes to the scene and he makes all these prophecies about the takeover 
of Judah. And so what he says is King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are going to go to the southern kingdom of Judah and they're going to completely wipe you out. And then you will be exiled into Babylon for years and years and years. And the thing is, the people didn't really believe this until it happened. And so for 30 years, Jeremiah preaches this. For 30 years, he prophesies the destruction of the southern kingdom. And after that 30 years hit, after Babylon came in, they took exiles to, to Babylon. And so here, see right here, Babylon is a little more to the east. They walk up north. They come in through Israel. They come into Judah and Jerusalem and they take people and they take 10,000 captives to Babylon. And so our scene where Ezekiel stands starts in that little red dot right there on the map where Babylon's at. He's in the midst of 10,000 exiles. And so where Daniel fits in this, Daniel is one of the exiles who walks with the people. He goes and is exiled to the, the people of Babylon. And we all know the story of Daniel. We know that he interprets dreams and he rises to the courts of Nebuchadnezzar. We know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fire and the bunny, the bunny, if any of you, you know, know VeggieTales. Yeah, some of you, okay, good, good, some of you know. Um, And so we know the story of Daniel and within this time, Daniel's here in Babylon for about six years before Ezekiel comes in. So six years after Daniel is ministering and prophesying towards Babylon, Daniel, who's, or Ezekiel, who's residing in Jerusalem, he gets called by God to go over to Babylon. Now here's the thing. This is the first sign of obedience we see in Ezekiel. He didn't have to go to Babylon. He wasn't an exile. He was living in Jerusalem at this time. But God called him to pack up his things and go live as an exile. And so he gets up and he leaves. And what happens is Judah still, they still are turning a blind eye to their God. The captives of Judah, they've lost everything. The only thing they have is the temple of Jerusalem. And this is going to be really key later on in the passage. So Judah right now, they have lost everything. They have become exiles. They've lost their families. Babylon has taken over Judah and they're living in Babylon completely right now, hopeless aside from the temple of Jerusalem. So they have still not turned to God. And that's what Jeremiah was saying all through the book of Jeremiah was, turn away from this, turn to God. You will eventually lose everything and you have nothing else to look for but to God. And yet they still are turning to their idols, even as captives. And so Ezekiel comes and he, this is kind of part two to Jeremiah. He says, all right, you've still not turned back to your creator. You're about to lose a lot more. And so for the first 24 chapters of Ezekiel, it's nothing but judgment of their sins. And so know that you see a correlation between Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel. And so Ezekiel enters Babylon about six years into Daniel's ministry. And here's what's going to happen is Ezekiel is going to enter and he's going to start prophesying these really dark things that are going to happen to Judah. In fact, he's going to be using himself as symbolism to prophecies towards Judah. And I'll explain myself. If you're familiar with the prophet Hosea, he marries a prostitute and that prostitute continually um, has affairs with other men. And that's to symbolize that God is for his people and he will always go back to his people. And so here Ezekiel does the same thing all throughout the first 24 books or 24 chapters, sorry. And he's even called the prophet of justice because he's so harsh in his language. And so you read this and you're like, well, we're okay. Where's, where's the hope? Well, we're going to find it pretty soon. So to understand the structure of Ezekiel, we have part one, which is chapters one through 24. And this is all surrounded. 
the siege of Jerusalem. So chapters 1 through 24, which is where we're at in our story, it's the pre-siege of Jerusalem. Part 2, chapters 25 through 32, this is happening during the siege of Jerusalem. And part 3, chapters 33 through 48, this is the post-siege of Jerusalem. And that's where we're going to find all of the hope within Ezekiel. So chapter 24 enters. And Ezekiel, up to this point, he's, he's laid on his side literally for 390 days and then literally for 40 days to symbolize the years that these Judah captives would be in Babylon as exiles. He literally cooks food over human feces to symbolize the unclean food that these Judah captives would eat. He cuts and shaves his hair and a third of it he burns. A third of it he throws in the air and cuts and a third of it he keeps. And that symbolizes the third of Judah captives who would live, the third who would burn, and the third who would be executed. And so he's doing these symbolic things to show that God is serious. And in chapter 24, we'll find out in verse 28 that this whole time he was mute. It's like that moment in the book of Eli where at the very end, Denzel Washington does all these amazing things and you find out, oh my gosh, he was blind the whole time. I really should have said a spoiler alert before that. I, I apologize. Well, this is what's happening. <laughs> Ezekiel, you're like, what? He was mute this whole time and that's why he does these symbolic actions to show the judgment of God against the sinful nation of Judah. And the only time he's able to talk is when he's prophesying. Now, that's debated whether he was actually mute. I think he was actually mute. And so in chapter 24, verse 15, we find our scene. We find that there's going to be great loss to Ezekiel. And what God says is, he says, Ezekiel, I will take away the delight of your eyes with a stroke. Yet you will not mourn. You will not weep. You shall not shed tears. You will not tear your clothes. And so Ezekiel, his wife is about to die and he's not allowed to do the cultural norms that people would do within this culture to signify that someone has died. And so it's interesting to think that this prophet was was tenderly and lovingly married. I mean, look at the language. He calls her the delight of his eyes. It's safe to assume Ezekiel loved his wife and yet she was about to be taken out for symbolism of what was about to happen to Judah. And so it gets really dark and it's really sad to think that this guy up to this point has been so obedient. And yet now it seems like after all the stuff he has done, now the worst type of prophetic symbolism is about to happen on him, the death of his wife. And all through Ezekiel up until 24, the question to Judah is what will happen when all your hope is gone, when on the foundation that you've leaned on, what happens when that crumbles? What happens when you have nothing? And God answers that through Ezekiel. That was tough. That was tough. It was weird for people to not go on the streets and rip their clothes and mourn. It was honoring to the dead in this culture to do that. And yet he didn't do that. And I look at him and I, I, am, I am struck by Ezekiel's obedience to God in this. He does it. He loses his wife and he obeys. And I'm struck by that. Because I believe Ezekiel never, never faltered in his view of God's glory. I believe Ezekiel knew that God was good. He knew that God was faithful and he knew that God had a plan. And so how can he react to tragedy in this way? Because he trusts in a God who is good. Because he trusts in a God whose glory, his majesty is good. And that's how I believe Ezekiel could be so obedient. is because he trusts in a God who is good. I think of one of my friends 
I'm about to use an example of. And she, uh, it's a girl named Chamilla Panilla. She works here at, at Grace Bible Church. Yeah, some of you know, know who I'm talking about. And I'm, struck, I'm struck by her story and I, I'm gonna do no justice to it, but I'm gonna do my best. And five years ago when she was a freshman in college, someone gave her a Gideon Bible. And through that, she became a Christian, which is really great. But she became a Christian at, at such great cost too. And up until this point, her mom has denied talking to her. Her father will talk to her, but even when he does, it's a hard conversation. It's to the point where my friend, she has to get invited to go to Christmas, invited to go to Thanksgiving, and that generally doesn't happen. And yet, if you know Chamilla, if you're friends with Chamilla, or if ladies, if you've been discipled by Chamilla, you know she's one of the most joyful people you'll ever meet. The glory of God has not left her eyes She's obedient and she's bold in her faith despite this tragic moment in her family. She's bold in her faith despite the people who birthed her turn away. And that inspires me. I see, I see people who know her nodding because it inspires them too. And I am just touched by that story because I know that that's hard. And yet the glory of God has not left her eyes and it's inspiring God uses our tragedy to get people's attention. And so what is Judah's response? Well, look here in verse 19. Already here, Ezekiel's wife has died. And the people said to him, will you not tell us what these things mean for us? That you are acting like this. So already Ezekiel's weird actions have caused people to ask questions. And look, the fact that he's not responding to a cultural norm the way that they expected They're asking questions. And so what does Ezekiel say to him? He says, the word of the Lord has come to me. Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes and the yearning of your soul and your sons and daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. What he's saying here is that the temple of Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. What's about to happen is all the hope that you've placed into this city of Jerusalem, it's about to be destroyed. And understand the context of that. that. That was it for them. They have placed their hope in so many things other than God, and they've all been taken away. But as long as Jerusalem stood, they stood a chance. As long as Jerusalem was a city that was standing, they knew they had hope. They put that foundation in Jerusalem. And so Ezekiel comes in and he says, that foundation's about to break and that foundation's going to be gone. And what are you going to do when it happens? Well, he says, you're not allowed to mourn or you're not allowed to weep. And so he's calling the nation of Judah, he's calling them to do something that culturally isn't done. He's saying, I want your actions to be seen by the nations surrounding you. And so notice this, the the fact that they're doing things that aren't culturally normal is getting the attention of people. Judah has lost everything and they're about to lose the one thing that they have put their complete hope into. It'd be like if someone invaded America and we were all living in, I don't know, another country and someone finally took down Washington, D.C. And that was it. We have nothing. We, we just have each other. But notice they don't even have their families. They've got nothing. It's a very dark passage if that's where you end it. If that's where we ended it, I was like, they have nothing. And they just want to see you. Good luck. That would be really, really hard to deal with and to listen to. And that's, that's really kind of depressing. 
And so I'll be honest with y'all. When I started reading this for the first time, it took me days and days. Some of the interns know I would be like, guys, this passage, I'm telling you, it is dark. I am not sure where, where the hope is in this. And time and time again, I read the passage and I would pray, God, where's the hope? I don't see the hope. And I got so distraught looking at this passage thinking, yeah, they deserve the judgment of their sin, but I'm, I'm looking for the hope that's in it. And then it struck me so hard. It hit me so hard. It was like that moment in the movie where the guy's best friends with the girls. And at the end, he's like, oh my gosh, you were beautiful and amazing the whole time. And you're in front of me. It's kind of like that. I was like, oh my gosh, it was right there the whole time. It was right in front of me. It's in verses 24. He says, when this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. And you know what my problem was the first time I read that is I was looking at that and I thought that was a bad thing. I was like, I was thinking God was saying, yeah, then you'll know. You'll know it's me. You should have came. Sorry, you had a chance. You know it's me now, but too late. That's not what he's saying. That is the message of hope is that when this happens, when they lose their temple, when they lose their city, when everything is finally gone, they will finally, they will finally see God. They will finally put their hope in God. That's what he's saying here. And that's the threat of hope throughout the entire book of Ezekiel is in the midst of this judgment, they will finally lose everything. And they will finally, finally know that he is God. That he is a God who has not forgotten his people. And so you look from chapters 33 on and it's nothing but hope. In the midst of so much judgment and tragedy, we see so much hope. In chapter 36, it says in 25 through 27, God says he will cleanse them of their idols. He will wipe them clean. He will remove them from their heart of stone and will put in a heart of flesh. God will give them a new spirit. And it moves into chapter 37. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. And that is the hope for these captives in Judah, that a God has not forgotten them, that God is their God and they are his people and he has not forgotten them. He will put a new heart. He will remove the heart of stone and he will put in a heart of flesh. If you're following with us in Hebrews, we're about to hit Hebrews 8 where it says the new covenant is better than the old. And a lot of that is we get that from Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel chapter 36. There is hope. There's so much hope. And so in the midst of this judgment, I'm not trying to diminish the sin. They were sinful and they were wrong and they turned an eye to God, an eye away from God. But you know what? God had not forgotten them. Yeah, did God break them? Did God use Ezekiel tragically as an example to break them? Yes, but he did it because he wants his people to finally know that he is the Lord God. And so the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple is a good thing because they'll finally lose the hope and the foundation that they had so falsely put their hope in. And I was thinking to myself, how do we apply this now? In our life, how do we apply this tragic prophet and this tragic incident to Judah in our life? Well, we apply it through Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who died on a cross and rose from the grave three days later. That is where we place our hope. And I look at what Jesus did, and it struck me this week that had he stayed in the grave, had he not risen, had he just died, sin would have won. Because sin ultimately ultimately leads to death. Without sin, there is no death. With sin, there is death. And Jesus took all our sin. He took all our sin on the cross and he died. And had he stayed dead, sin would have won. And if sin was a person, he would have won. 
He would have stuck the flag on the grave of Jesus and he would have won. But that is not what happened. He rose from the grave three days later, conquering sin and conquering death. And now death for the Christian is so ironic because the sin that ultimately leads to our death, through Christ we have eternal life. And it's so beautiful, that hope. That's why we can rejoice in tragedy That's why when tragedy hits, when suffering hits, that's where we place our hope. And a creator who sent his son to die and raised for the grave for our sin. That is where we put our hope. Man, and it's so encouraging to know that Jesus loved us enough to take on the full weight of our sin, even to death. And so what does it mean in terms of Ezekiel? We look at Ezekiel, this prophet, we look at what he went through. And I think to myself, that quote I said in the very beginning that I want to reiterate is when we don't respond to tragedy and suffering the way the world expects, we get their attention. And so for the Christian, what that means is if we have joy in the midst of our suffering and tragedy, people will notice. I was at a Dulos Christmas party a couple months ago. And it was great. We were having a great time. We were laughing. We were having fun, making jokes. And it was just wonderful. And something happened. A friend of mine, a guy named Dylan Johnson, who some of you know, he walked into my house and he grabs his girlfriend and they're about to walk out and I run into him and he has tears in his eyes and he says that his brother has just died. And after that, everything kind of gets fuzzy and, and everything's kind of in slow motion and you can't really focus. And that, that was the first time a close friend of mine had someone in his family die. And so I went over to the funeral. A couple of us interns went to the funeral and his mom got up there. His mom of the 17-year-old boy, who's also a twin, he just just died. And the mom gets up there and she has tears in her eyes. She doesn't have a false sense of optimism. She's not smiley. She is broken. Yet she used that situation to inspire hope into the people that she listened to or who would listen to her. She got up there and yeah, she mourned the death of her son but she praised the fact that there was hope in Jesus, that she knows she would see him again. She used this suffering. She used this tragedy for the glory of God. She used this tragedy to look at the people she was in front of and share the gospel. How much more weight is the gospel in the midst of our tragedy? And so Dylan, what happened next is he, he still is a leader here at Grace Bible Church. And this summer, he's going on a summer project. He's going to do mission work, and he's going to go share the gospel to people who don't know it. To the world, that's crazy. He just lost his brother. He shouldn't have to go overseas. He shouldn't have to go serve and help people. That, that's not his job. Leave that to people who aren't broken. But you know what? He decides to use the struggle to use this tragedy, to use this suffering for the glory of God, to inspire people. He uses this as a platform to share the gospel with people who don't know him. And he is so excited to go overseas to share the gospel with people who don't know him. And I know when people know that he just lost his brother mere months ago, that that adds weight to the words that he's saying. I'm inspired by Dylan. And I know some of you who know him are inspired by him too. Because he is using this tragedy for the glory of God as much as it hurts. As hard as it is, he is using this for the glory of God. And so fellow Christians in the room, remember that when we don't respond to tragedy the way the world expects, we get their attention. Let us not use the scars in our life as people with no hope. Because we have hope in the only thing that saves, and that is salvation through Jesus Christ.
Let us use our struggles, our, our pain, our tragedies to emulate the gospel of Christ to the world who desperately needs him. Christians, that is my, that is my message for you tonight is that we would come together as a community of believers and in our tragedies and in our sufferings, proclaim the name of Jesus who is good. He is so good. Let us proclaim his name to a broken world. And if we've got scars, if we've got tragedy, let us use that as a platform and a foundation to shed light onto him who is good. Let's pray. God, we we praise you for being good despite our sin and our struggle, Lord. Despite tragedy, we know that you are good. Father, I, I pray for the people in this room right now who are, who are struggling, who are dealing with suffering, who are dealing with tragedy. Father, I pray that they would so feel your presence. And Lord, I pray that they would emulate the gospel, that they would use this tragedy, Father, as a tool to share the gospel of Jesus. A Savior who is good and who is loving, who is kind, he is, he is easy. He's loving. And so, Lord, I, that's, that's my prayer. As Father, that no matter what we go through in life, Father, that we would remember that we are loved by a Savior, that we are loved by a Creator. It's his, his name we pray by which we are only saved through faith, through Jesus. Amen.